Welcome to Data Remediations, a podcast connecting environmental data with people and places through stories and art. Patricia Kim, and I'm finishing my graduate studies in art history at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Bethany Wigan. I'm a faculty at Penn, and I direct the program in environmental humanities. That's a place where we're committed to sharing our research with audiences beyond our campus. And that's just one of the reasons we started this podcast with a lot of help from our friends. Yeah, data remediations. Uh, we feature stories from seven cities and some towns across the U.S., We'll be talking with urban sustainability directors about federal data they need to manage nuisance flooding or... Oh, to prevent fatalities in extreme heat. That's right. And in conversations with teachers and students, we'll learn about the new kinds of data we might want, especially as the climate continues to change. Future episodes also listen in at participatory public events aimed at encouraging more environmental storytelling. We get to talk with data and civic tech experts on the show, and each episode will introduce a key data concept, like Like, data equity (laughs) or data data poverty. Yes, and we'll learn how they're experienced on the ground in these different cities and towns. So we hope you'll listen in and follow the stories as we travel cross-country, and um, maybe you'll join us at the end of our journey in Washington, D.C. At the headquarters of National Geographic for a festival about the art and science, about the stories and the data that we'll need for climate Climate action. action. (laughs) (laughs) Flashback music. Time machine. The podcast has its roots in Data Refuge, a collaborative public project that sought to rescue federal climate and environmental data endangered by a newly elected federal administration who had run a campaign based on climate denial. Data Refuge began as a student project here at Penn in Philly and, with a lot of help, grew into a collaboration fueled by thousands of volunteers working across the country and internationally. Librarians, archivists, academic researchers, members of the civic tech community, we all participated in 50 data rescues at libraries and campuses across the country. The rescues continued into the summer of 2017, and they were helped by journalists and news media who amplified our warnings about how inconvenient truths could be silenced. As a librarian from Temple University said, we were sending, quote, love letters to the future. I think that, I mean, running up, so the run up to the 2016 election, from my perspective, you know, we had just finished the, the Paris Agreement. That was Eric Holthouse, a meteorologist and climate writer at Grist, who amplified our concerns with a tweet storm and then was featured in an op-ed that landed on the front page of the Washington Post. And there was this hope that we were embarking on this grand era of international cooperation for the first time in 30 years of 
of international attention to climate change. And I think when that didn't happen, I mean, it's happening, but it's happening without U.S. leadership. So in that context, I think for the U.S. climate community specifically, it felt like a dangerous moment. Like Eric, Michael Halpern, the deputy director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, helped us in the beginning. Oh, Data Refuge was so many things. It was hope. Data Refuge was agency. It was control. It gave scientists something to do in a very uncertain time. A lot of us lived through the George W. Bush years where science was manipulated and suppressed and distorted to fit predetermined policy outcomes. And at the time, we saw the EPA try to shut down its entire library system, making it all kinds of environmental data and information inaccessible to not only researchers, but the public. And uh, we were successful in that time in stopping the shutdown of that system. Um, But it took a lot of organizing and it took a lot of uh, innovation to really communicate both to policymakers and to the public what was at stake. You know, you, you fast forward 10 years and we were in a new world where there was so much data that was available with a click. And it wasn't just the data, it was all of the really fantastic tools. I mean, it's that old cliche that knowledge is power. What we need right now is the attention of those in power to understand and acknowledge the implications of climate science. That climate science data was meaningful to the scientists themselves, but it's also a symbol of the potential of a different world. It felt like a moment when what we had taken for granted was suddenly unpredictable. We also learned that it wasn't just data sets that were at risk, but really all kinds of digital assets from data visualization tools to teaching resources used by so many people from civic planners to real estate agents to school teachers and government officials, homeowners, and residents of cities and towns across the world. In other words, scientists weren't the only people anxious about what would happen to data and digital assets. Data experts and data intermediaries voiced their concerns as well like Denise Ross, the data strategy lead at New America, a think tank located in Washington, D.C. I uh, worked for a local data intermediary in New Orleans uh, for 10 years. After Katrina, we spent a lot of time advocating for local government to open up data that would be essential for the recovery. Data sets like the parcel layer or data on building permits or land use changes, that was all really crucial for making sure that the recovery was fair. I moved into local government when Mayor Landrieu was elected. And um, from that perch, I was invited to the White House when they launched the White House Climate Data Initiative in 2014. And there was so much optimism about how these new data coming out of all of these federal agencies would help local communities with the big threats that they were facing with climate change. When the election happened and we saw that there was a real threat of losing data, especially data that might be politically inconvenient around climate change issues, the thought of that progress that we had made and the federal data disappearing made me feel very angry. (laughs) 
There was too much precedence for this kind of politically motivated data suppression and erasure. In addition to the EPA library closings during the Bush two years, our neighbors to the north had already experienced similar losses under the former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, whose administration silenced scientific research. In fact, we were relieved to hear that our concerns were shared around the globe. The then-nascent Environmental Data Governance Initiative, or EDGI, for example, had organized a guerrilla archiving event in Toronto. Scientific research as well as local political advocacy and equity were at stake. So we decided to take action. With the help of people like Eric, Michael, and Denise, the Data Refuge team was able to contact scientists and former employees of different federal agencies to assess which data sets were most vulnerable through a survey. My job wasn't to pick and choose the most important or most vulnerable data and tools. My job was to connect the data users with those who were best positioned to protect that information and those tools. So what I did wasn't to pick winners and losers, but to really facilitate the communication between archivists and uh, librarians and researchers so that that collaboration would be most fruitful and the energies that were being put into this project would be most efficient. Archivists teach that data, like records, exist in a life cycle from creation to access, through to preservation or destruction. In other words, data must be cultivated to be useful. Thus, what we realized in our many conversations with our other academics and activists was that issues around data preservation were at the heart of libraries' communities. I'm Margaret Jans. I'm the data curation librarian at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. Data Refuge was pretty quick after 2016, and it really was just all of my time went into that. Um, pretty much every waking hour was, was Data Refuge. I think the, the awareness after these events was, to me, that was the biggest thing that we took away, was the attention that was brought to this project. Really, it made people realize that this is a problem, that having all the government data stewarded by government employees on government servers. It's not a best practice. <laughs> it's not the best way to do it, and that data is at risk of political whims. And I think people had never really considered that before, but it's something really important. I think it also brought light to just that all digital information is really vulnerable to just going away. <laughs> we take it for granted every day, all the time. So with these shared concerns in mind, we worked with civic data experts, librarians, artists, activists, and academics from all disciplines to advocate for the continued production, use, and access of federal environmental and climate data. Our collaborators joined us for Data Rescue Philadelphia, a two-day event that we hosted in January 2017 at the Penn Libraries. This event included an archivathon where coders and archivists downloaded and described data from federal sites like the EPA, NASA, and NOAA to ensure its continued use by researchers. But we also organized a teach-in about issues around data equity and data poverty, and a storytelling team that worked to create data use cases to show how data connected people, places, and non-human species across the country and the globe. 
Professor Tad Shore, an anthropologist at the University of Pennsylvania, helped lead the storytelling team. The, the data, well, virtually anywhere in the federal government, data are important, but specifically from a scientific standpoint, uh, data from, from, from NASA, from NOAA, uh, organizations that, that collect data that allow us to understand climate change, the, the health and vitality of the oceans, EPA, which monitors the, the health of human populations in relation to chemicals produced by various companies, uh, air, air and water quality. Those are obviously of great concern. Um, but even for the agriculture department to monitor monitor crops and to monitor uh, uh, you know yields of crops and the possible diseases affecting them, you can think of almost any organization in the federal government where scientific data are important. That's also true for, uh, you know, for, for in National Institutes of Health with regard to data that uh, in areas where there's some contestation over information regarding, say, uh, you know, the effect of gun, gun violence uh, for public health, which is under the CDC, or the NIH with regard to various forms of cancer. So all these, these kinds of data are absolutely essential for being able to make good judgments about how to di dictate policy that helps, helps human populations, helps, helps the world globally. Over the long hours, days, and months of those rescue efforts, we learned that what we might think of as environmental data wasn't just in the obvious places like the Environmental Protection Agency or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We discovered that environmental data was also health data and agricultural data and more, that it gets created and stewarded all over the place. And while scientific data generally presents itself as numbers, graphs, and charts, we wanted to demonstrate just how personal and life-changing data could be. The most potent example of this is perhaps the rebuilding of New Orleans post-Hurricane Katrina, in which Denise Ross played a huge part. I take data very personally. Um, so, you know, it's been a, a big part of my professional and personal life. When um, I worked for 10 years for a data intermediary, a nonprofit in New Orleans, and my work there was punctuated by Hurricane Katrina. And I remember that feeling of having no data, like no information to help chart our path toward recovery. We were really flying blind. And when President Obama, um, issued his open government directive in 2009, it had really profound implications at the local level for the work we were doing in New Orleans. It was so inspirational to see federal government take a stand and say, this is the people's data and we're going to make it easily accessible to the masses. As Denise advocates, federal data should be widely accessible. But we also began to wonder, how can data be made more legible and useful to people's lives? So data remediations provides one example of the kind of creative work we're doing to translate data. To make data more accessible and meaningful to general audiences, we're partnering with artists, performers, and storytellers to stir hearts and make change in our local and federal governments. One of our artist partners is the collective The Environmental Performance Agency, or just EPA. Chris Kennedy and Catherine Grau of the EPA tell us more about their goals. I guess for me, you know, it's, it feels like a very overwhelming time. There's a lot of change and a lot of projected shift in how the US EPA is going to operate. The Environmental Performance Agency for me has been a really restorative platform to think about sort of very active and performative ways that I can use my body 
my mind um, and different kinds of creative skills to really think through ways to be more in relationship to urban ecologies and to the kind of weedy species of friends, the sort of urban plants that I think are going to show us the way if we want to sort of survive in a kind of climate change world. By, by using this acronym and claiming it as Environmental Performance Agency, one of the questions and, and ways of thinking we keep coming back to is who has agency and how do we perform that agency? And that is like one of the aspects that sometimes is makes our work accessible through the lens of humor is that we have these EPA suits and we really perform as the EPA, even in, in small and subtle ways, but by occupying space in our EPA suits collecting data and interacting with people in the streets about what it means to collect data and how we can analyze our environment has been a really big part of the work. Much like the scientists, academics, and data experts who were concerned about the new administration, the EPA, the Environmental Performance Agency that is, also sensed the urgency around climate change and the threats that the new federal administration posed. They also decided to take climate action through art and performance. Ellie of the EPA shares why such performative methods are crucial in a time of rapid ecological change. One of the things that drew me to this practice to begin with actually does come out of this attraction I had as a young person when I was studying environmental science to close observation and finding a baseline from which to understand my world. And I think that's one of the things we're doing in focusing in these often overlooked spaces and looking for ways to see agency where we would usually pass it by is that in this moment of rapid change, we're finding a way to ground ourselves in understanding what's right in front of us so that we can come to have kind of a baseline to understand how things change going forward and whether that's this sensorial data that kind of is the feel of a place that's kind of a totality or it is a single record of this plant bloomed on this day in this spot. I think both of those things for me are kind of restorative and strengthening. It gives me a, a sense of knowing where I am <laughs> even as I know things are going to change rapidly. We believe that art and performance projects, like the Environmental Performance Agency, can help us confront the challenges of a changing climate. And we invite you to listen along with us to the stories about data from diverse communities across the country. In our next episode, we'll learn about data equity and feature stories of data, people, and water in our adopted home, the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia.